my name's Phil. James is here as well. Um, we're doing the seminar together. I thought I'd begin. Hopefully, you know why you're here. You know what what seminar this is. It's it's about engaging subcultures. Um, and I thought I'd, I'd begin just by briefly introducing us um, and explaining why we're here, why we're we're taking this seminar. Um, James and I met when we were in university. Uh, we've both been involved in student ministry since then. I worked with the, the Christian unions on university campuses. James has been involved with university chaplaincies. Um, and part of our responsibilities and our roles in that was, was helping students know how to engage with the culture around them. Um, James and I also both share quite a niche interest. Um, we're both kind of geeks, for want of a better term. Um, we really enjoy board games. We really enjoy nerdy movies. But in those things, we find ourselves uh, often being in places where we, we interact with people who wouldn't ordinarily come near a church, who wouldn't ordinarily be reached by standard church outreaches. And so having that and then our experience in, in working with students and helping them engage with culture, it got us thinking about how we can use our interests and our passions and, and the things that we enjoy to get out and meet people and, and to reach people who wouldn't ordinarily be caught by standard church outreach. So that's a bit about us. That's, that's why we've put this together, the seminar, and hopefully some of the stuff we have will be useful to you. Um, so just to give you a brief overview as to, to what's going to happen, um, I'm going to begin just by laying out sort of a, a, a theological basis. I'm going to take the microphone out of here. Hold on. I'm going to begin just by giving a sort of a theological basis for engaging with culture in general. Uh, the reason for this is that we as Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God. We believe what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy where he says that scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching, and that it will equip us for every good work. And so whenever we begin to think about ministry and how we go about ministry, we want to have that foundation on scripture because we believe that it equips us for ministry. So I'm going to begin by doing a, a sort of a theological basis for engaging with culture. And then I'm going to hand over to James, who's going to come up and, and take us through a brief exercise and then take some of those biblical principles and expand them into how we can use our own interests, uh, our, our own passions to reach people in the subcultures of society. Subcultures really just being a group of people within wider society who share a common interest or a passion. So that being said, we'll dive right in. The theology of cultural engagement will want to look at Jesus in first century Palestine. So taking the example of Christ, how did he interact with people? How did he speak into culture? How did he minister to people? How did he, how did he engage with the people around him? To find that out, I want to look at Jesus' approach to ministry and compare that to the approach to ministry taken by some of the major religious groups at the time and show how Jesus' approach was unique and what we can learn from that. So just a very brief sort of setting the scene, setting the context of the culture that Jesus was speaking into. First century Palestine, as I'm sure you're aware, was primarily home to the Jewish nation, but there were pockets of Gentiles also living there. There were people from Rome, there was people from Syria, there was people from Greece. There were other cultures dotted about. Uh, Roman occupation, uh, Jerusalem and, and Israel was under Roman occupation at the time. And with Roman occupation came in foreign cultures, came in foreign ideas. Uh, what, what's commonly known as Hellenism, um, which is a, a combination of Greek cultures and philosophies, had started to come in to first century Palestine. There were different social classes. There was the, the religious and the political elite down to the sort of the everyday citizen, um, down to, to foreign Gentiles, um, even through to sinners, which is kind of, in, in that time, was a catch-all term, which included people like prostitutes or tax collectors or sometimes even the ill and the infirm. So there's a whole range of different social classes. Uh, so this, this is the culture that Jesus was ministering into. This is the culture that Jesus was existing in. And so I want to begin by looking at sort of the, some of the different major religious groups of the time. How did they conduct their ministry? How did they see the importance of engaging with culture? How did they go about that? And then we'll look to Jesus and see how his approach was unique. So first off, a group called the Essenes. I don't know if this throws any of you back to like RE classes in school or anything like that. 
The Essenes were a group that we, we know very little about from Scripture itself, um, but with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls a number of years ago, we actually found out an awful lot about who they were and their, their practice and their influence on, on first century Palestinian culture. The Essenes, for want of a better term, were essentially like kind of like a monastic tribe. The Essenes were a group that saw the temple authority in Jerusalem and the, the surrounding culture as completely corrupt, as having strayed from the commands of God. They saw culture as a whole as something which was, was not honoring to God. And so their approach to that, rather than engaging with it, was they wanted to remove themselves from that culture. So they took themselves out of Jerusalem, they took themselves out of society, and went to live in the wilderness as sort of a monastic tribe in and of themselves. They rejected the authority of Jerusalem and its culture, seeing it all as corrupt. They had little to no association with those outside of their, of their, their own group. They weren't interested in reaching out to others. They saw their isolation as a way of remaining undefiled by the corrupt culture. And not only that, but we know again from reading the Dead Sea Scrolls that part of their belief was that they were expecting an imminent apocalypse to come that God was going to send his Messiah and bring about an apocalypse that would wipe out all of the children of darkness as they knew them, all the people that they saw as corrupt. And they believed at that point that God would renew his covenant with the chosen children of light, which was themselves. So the Essenes had removed themselves from culture. They, they had no interest in reaching out to others. And in fact, were actually waiting for the destruction of all those they saw as corrupt. They had no interest in, in, in teaching people about the kingdom of God. They had no interest in, in reaching the lost. They were just awaiting their destruction so that their own individual sect could be glorified. So in summary, the Essenes isolated themselves from a society, that, a society they saw as completely corrupt. They, they didn't seek engagement on any level. They viewed wider culture as completely corrupt and also those who chose to remain in it as corrupt. And rather than being interested in, in saving the lost, they were awaiting the destruction of others. So that's the Essenes. The Sadducees are a group we hear a little bit more about in Scripture. The Sadducees are, are almost on completely the other end of the spectrum from the Essenes. Whereas the Essenes removed themselves from culture, the Sadducees began to embrace it. The Sadducees were, were like the wealthy social religious elite of first century Palestine. They were the ones who oversaw the temple and its practices. Um, but they also began to embrace the, the Hellenistic culture that I mentioned earlier. The, the culture that was brought in by the Roman occupiers, the, the sort of the Greek philosophies and cultures of the day, the Sadducees began to embrace. Now, part of this, we imagine, is probably because if they remain friendly with the Roman occupiers, the people in charge, then they maintain their own social standing within society. If they cozy up to the guys who are calling the shots, then they hold on to their own sort of social comfort, their own, their own place, their own level of authority. However, as they embraced the culture that the Romans were bringing in, they took it to the point where they began to deny scripture they began to deny key doctrines as a matter of fact the sadducees really began to deny all of scripture outside of genesis to deuteronomy they held that genesis to deuteronomy was scripture was the word of god and denied everything that came afterwards they still put a high value on the temple and its practices and its sacrifices because they were they were in charge of overseeing it but scripture they denied and they began to deny some key doctrines of the faith as well. They, they denied the concept of an afterlife. They, they denied resurrection of the body. They denied the existence of angels and demons. Really anything that would have seemed strange or, or, or a, even a silly idea to their, their Roman friends, they began to set aside. Their embrace of culture took them to the point where they denied scripture. They denied the truth of God's word. Jesus is critical of them for this very point. Um, there's an instance in Mark 12 where they approach Jesus and they, they start to ask him questions about the resurrection. And they, they create this sort of nonsense scenario about uh, a man who uh, marries a woman and then he dies. And so his brother marries a woman and then that brother dies. And so the next brother marries a woman. And then he, uh, they, they ask, you know, in the resurrection, which clearly is going to happen, uh, who, who is the woman going to be married to? 
They're creating this nonsense scenario in order to try and ridicule whatever response Jesus gives to show that, that the, the whole concept of resurrection is nonsense. And if you look in Mark 12, you'll see that Jesus responds to them essentially by pointing out the absolute folly of their denial of Scripture. In fact, in, in verse 24, it's one of the most damning responses that, that Jesus gives. He says to them, This is the reason that you're wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Their submission to the surrounding culture at the expense of faithfulness to God's Word had led them to the point where they were no longer even experiencing the power of God in their lives. So the Sadducees embraced culture to the point of denying truth, of denying Scripture. They sought their own social comfort over standing for truth, standing for the truth of the Gospel. And as a result, they didn't experience the power of God. So that's the Essenes who, who saw society as corrupt and took themselves out of it. We've looked at the Sadducees who embraced culture to the point of denying truth. And the last group I want to look at before we turn to Jesus is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the, the group that we often look on as like the, the comic book villains of the Gospels. The, the, the group that Jesus is constantly clashing with throughout Scripture. Where are they on the spectrum from the, the isolationist Essenes on the one side to the, the completely embracing Sadducees on the other? Now this next statement I want to ask you in advance to please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Um, hopefully the explanation I give afterwards will, will give it some basis. But the Pharisees essentially in their time, they were like the evangelicals of first century Palestine. They sought to promote the word of God they taught others to live in light of God's commands. They called people to obedience and purity. They sought to honor God in their lives and in their words and their deeds. They rejected the, the, the false philosophies and culture of the Romans in, faith, in favor of remaining faithful to God's word. But they didn't remove themselves from society. They, they still traveled around the towns and the villages and sought to engage people in dialogue. And so if they haven't fallen into the trap of either the Essenes or the Sadducees, the question we would ask is why was Jesus then so critical of them? And the problem, as I'm sure we all understand from reading the Gospels, was in their hearts. The Pharisees were, were puffed up. They believed themselves to be the spiritual elite. They went out of their way to publicly demonstrate their devotion to the law, right down to the, the, the very finest minutiae of detail of, of some sort of outward observance, of ritual observance of the law. But they completely ignored the heart of the law, the moral requirements, the, the aspect of God's law that calls us to, to love the oppressed, to, to, to care for the suffering. Jesus himself condemns them for this um, in Matthew 23, which contains what's, what's generally known as the seven woes that he, he puts upon the Pharisees. Um, one of them in verses 23 to 26, he calls them out for, for um, fighting and arguing over the very finest point of ritual observance, right down to like the, the measurement of spices that you would use. And tells them that they spend so much time arguing about this, but they completely ignore issues of justice, issues of mercy, uh, issues of love. The Pharisees wouldn't associate with people that they saw as the sinners of their day or anyone that they saw as unclean. In fact, they believed that if people were to become worthy of God's love, if people were to become worthy of, of, of even interacting with them, the Pharisees, that the people must become just like them. The people must care to the same level, the same degree, about all the ritualistic observances of the law. Um, they, must, they must think and act the exact same way as the Pharisees to be worthy of their time or to be worthy of God's love. So the Pharisees, they sought engagement only on their own terms. They thought that people had to come to them, had to be like them. They only wanted to engage with culture or with people on their own terms and in their own safe spaces. They had no love for the lost, and they believed people had to be just like them. And so now we look to Jesus. How did, how did Jesus' approach differ from these three groups that, that were around at the time that he was ministering? First of all, Jesus saw the kingdom of God as something that's global, not as something that's exclusive. 
Whereas the Essenes took themselves out of society and believed that the coming salvation was just for them, Jesus told his followers that the kingdom of God is something that's open to all. Matthew 28, verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice the the sort of twofold point uh, in this verse as Jesus is giving this command to his followers first of all he's telling them to go he's telling them to go into all nations into all languages in all cultures he's commanding his people to go and interact with the cultures of the world don't remain within their own safe space within their own safe bubble go out go to the people go to where they are and second he's telling them to make disciples of all nations The kingdom of God is not something that's exclusively just for those who already have it. It's open to all people, all races, all nations, all cultures. Secondly, Jesus engaged in the social activities of his day, and he did so with all people. Luke 14, 1. One day, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, Jesus ate with the religious elite. He ate with the highest, the upper echelons of society. Mark 2.15, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Levi a tax collector, and many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Jesus ate with the people who were seen as the highest point of society, and he ate with the people that were classified as, uh, classified as sinners, as, as um, traitors to, to the Jewish people. Jesus interacted with everyone. If you go through the Gospels, you'll see how many times it refers to Jesus sitting down and having a meal. Because having a meal was something that was of fundamental importance in first century Palestine. Sitting down with someone to have a meal meant that you were on level footing with them. You were identifying yourself with them, with their people, with their interests. And so when Jesus eats with the religious elite and with sinners and tax collectors, he's showing that he's there to interact with every level of society. Jesus engaged in discussion and debate with the Pharisees and the scribes at the synagogues and at the temple. And later he would go and attend a wedding in Cana. He spoke with fishermen on the shore as they were bringing in their catch. He healed lepers in their own isolated communities. And he taught people from hillsides. He ate meals with people. He often asked people that he had healed to not go and spread the news that he had done a miraculous healing for them. Now, part of this is obviously because he didn't want to just attract a group of people who were there because they were wanting to see wonders, that they were, they were glory seekers. They wanted to see these miracles happen. I think that was part of it. But I think another part of it was that Jesus understood that once people started crowding to him, he would no longer be free to freely enter the towns and villages and meet people on their own turf, in their own homes, where they were. He would no longer have the freedom to go and say, sit beside a well and speak to a woman who was coming to draw water in the heat of the day. Jesus wanted to meet people where they were. Unlike the Pharisees, he didn't force engagement on his own terms or shun those who would seem unworthy. He didn't shy away from the messiness of people's lives. He met them where they were. He came to serve. He came to seek and to save the lost. And finally, Jesus didn't ever turn away from the truth. Unlike the Sadducees who embraced the culture around them to the point where they denied scripture, where they denied key doctrines to the faith, Jesus never turned from the truth. We see recorded in the Gospels that he, in the early morning, would take himself off to a point where he could be alone with the Father, to pray, to fast, to spend time in devotion to his Father. He frequently sought that quiet isolation. When he interacted with people, he never failed to tell them of the coming kingdom or of their need to repent. He remained faithful to the Father at all times, over and above his own cultural comfort. There's many times that if Jesus had just stayed silent, he would have had a far easier time. But he remained faithful and true to the purpose that he was sent for. And yet in all that, Jesus was never domineering. He was never overpowering. Anytime he spoke about the truth of God's kingdom or the need of people to repent, he did it out of love and out of respect and out of humility. He sought to reach people where they were on their terms. He asked them questions about their lives. He engaged with them on a human level. But he never failed 
to tell them the truth of the coming kingdom and of the need to repent and turn towards God. So this is how Jesus' approach was unique, how it was different from the different religious groups of his day. I'm going to hand over to Jim at this point, um, who's going to come and explain what we can take from this um, and then how that can practically work out as we start to think not just about engaging with culture and the importance of engaging with culture, but how we can use our own interests, our own passions, the things that we enjoy doing to reach those subsets of society that wouldn't ordinarily be reached by standard church outreach. So I'll ask Jim to come up now. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Phil, and thanks, folks, for joining us. It's really lovely to be here with you all this morning. If you read our seminar blurb for this morning, you'll have seen that Phil and I quote it from the Great Commission, and Phil's already touched on it a wee bit uh, in the course of the seminar this morning. And I suppose as we start, and just to ground this second part of our seminar, but also to tie together the first bit that, that Phil uh, talked us through and the second part of the seminar, I just want to read from that portion of Scripture again. As recorded, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, here's what Scripture says, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. In the Great Commission, we find uh, a way of engaging with culture that was completely different to those outlined by the three groups that Phil introduced us to in the first part of the seminar. I'm going to throw those differences up on screen here. First of all, the Great Commission was a commission to go to all nations. It wasn't a, uh, a command to exclude ourselves, to secrete ourselves away, or to fear contact with the world outside, but rather a command to go. And that, that word go that's used there is not a word that says in our spaces and on our terms. The word that the gospel writer uses there is a Greek word, poruomai, which means to remove yourself. But the Great Commission was also a command to go to nations and carry with us to them the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to deny or forsake those teachings in order to make engagement with culture more palatable. So we have in the Great Commission something that's different to these three groups that Phil presented to us. And in those three groups, we find really examples of how not to do cultural engagement. And in this second part of our seminar, what we'd love to do is uh, to take that idea and to take some of the teaching of Jesus that Phil introduced for us and to start to think practically for ourselves. How does this look like? How does this look in our own lives? How do we engage with culture well as the 21st century church who are called to that same commission? And really that starts with the premise that Phil and I introduced even in the title of our seminar this morning that we reckon that a very natural open door for us and a very uh, easy way for us to interact with culture is through the interests and the hobbies and the passions that each of us possess in our lives. Because those things, those interests, give us a remarkable common ground on which to engage the world around us. Before we start, we want to have a brief exercise. How do we panic when it went up on the slide? Because I thought people will think we're doing lunges for five minutes. It's not that kind of exercise. We're just going to have a chat together. I'd love us to have a conversation. A conversation about where your common ground is. You've come along this morning to a seminar entitled Ministering Through Your Unique Passions. So I'm making a stretch and I'm hoping that you have a unique passion. There's something that you love to do in life. There's a hobby that you love to pursue. There's a joy that you have in your life. Maybe it's a kind of sport. Maybe it's reading books, maybe it's film or playing music. Maybe it's something totally bizarre or wonderfully geeky like Phil and I, or board games and all kinds of nerdy culture. Have that conversation with the people around you. Turn to somebody maybe you didn't come in with this morning. I think that's one of the great things about New Horizon. We get to chat to our extended family. We get to meet brothers and sisters we've never met before. So talk about the things that you love to do. And secondly, have a discussion about where you do the things that you love to do. So if it's a sport that you love to, to play, where do you do that? Are you a member of a, a sports club? Do you go to a gym? If it's a, a hobby, do you go to a society that, that advocates that hobby? Is it just meeting with your friends in cafes? Is it going to the cinema? Is it playing in an orchestra? What do you love to do and where do you love to do it? Take two minutes and have that conversation with the people around you. And I'll bring us back in about two minutes time. Have a wee chat there for a second or two, folks.
thank you. Sorry to interrupt your conversations, but thank you for being part of that discussion. Uh, I hope it was useful. I hope you found out some interesting things about the folks around you. My, my hope in that will have been that in the course of that conversation, you got chatting to someone whose passions and interests were completely different to yours. Now, if they weren't, that's great because you've made a new friend and you can do those kind of things together now. Fantastic. But hopefully you'll have met somebody who has different, unique interests compared to you. And the reason that that's useful in this conversation is that it serves to highlight the diversity of the body of Christ. Providentially, God has given each of us a wide variety of passions and interests. And crucially, what that does for us is those, those unique interests bring us into contact with people that the person that you were talking to might not otherwise come into contact with. Your interests gives you a common ground on which to engage certain subcultures that the person that you were chatting to maybe won't ever engage with and vice versa. They'll get chatting to folks that you won't otherwise perhaps have the chance and the opportunity to communicate with. And that's really where, where our seminar starts in terms of this practical outworking of it. Our hobbies, our interests, our passions give us a wonderful missional opportunity because they give us an opportunity to connect with subcultures of people. Now that word connect is an important one and I want to I expand on it a little bit by introducing you to the work of uh, a sociologist. Uh, a guy called Ray Oldenburg, he was writing in 1989 and he wrote really a foundational piece of work on community building. It was a, a book called The Great Good Place by Ray Oldenburg. And what Oldenburg was kind of doing in the course of this piece of work was he was uh, looking at suburban middle class America and its commuter culture. And he noticed that people were traveling from work to the home, from home to the work and back again with little interaction outside of those two places. So they went from home to work and back again and hadn't any connection with people outside of that. And he chatted to some of those folks and he chatted to, to counselors and to psychotherapists around America and he observed what he called in this kind of home to work and back to home journey what Oldenburg termed a generalized loneliness. A generalized loneliness. People were missing something in this constant yo-yo of home to work and back again. So Oldenburg kind of broke it down and he said, right, if home is the first place that people are spending time and work is the second place that people are spending time, then there must be a third place, a place that delivers something that is quintessentially important to the human experience. And Oldenburg called these kind of anchors of community life, places where you interact with other people. And he noted one or two characteristics of these third places. I'll pop them up on screen. First of all, he says they were places that developed naturally through our shared interests. You gather together with people who are interested in the same things that you're interested in. Through that, there comes an ease of conversation. Never conversation marked by hostility or tension, but always friendly. They were places where people found a sense of familiarity. The same faces came back to these places week after week. And finally, through that, folks find a sense of belonging in those places. They put down roots. They find a connection there that they perhaps only otherwise found at home. The reason I wanted to highlight what Oldenburg writes about here is because I think we find in this sociologist writing in 1989 an observation of a truth that's laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. People need connection with other people. We see that in the pages of Genesis pre-fall Adam, who lived in perfect harmony with his creator, walked with God in the cool of the afternoon. God looked at him and he still observed that he was lonely. He craved connection with another person. We recognize that in our churches. It's why we carve out time for what we call fellowship, for joining together, for encouraging one another, for edifying one another in our house groups, our home groups, our cell groups, our ladies groups, our, our men's groups. But the people who don't attend a church for those who aren't part of that fellowship, they find that human connection in Ray Oldenburg's third places, in these places where they go to experience a shared interest, places where they go for conversation, familiarity, and belonging. And that's sort of the, the foundational bedrock that we want to move forward from here. As we engage in our hobbies and our interests and our passions, they can take us into places where we come into contact with the people of the world who are yearning for connection.
and we have a natural common ground on which to engage with those people because of the shared interests that exist between us. And yet, for some reason, when we think about these third places, they don't always seem like natural places for us to conduct mission. Because when we think missionally about these places of shared interest, we often think in terms of removing people from them in order to do mission. So the example here is, uh, you love to play rugby. Uh, You're a member of a rugby club, you play in a rugby team, you have a heart for those that you play rugby with, and your thought process becomes, what event in my church can I invite the members of my rugby team to? Phil mentioned at the start that we were both part of student ministry for years, and that idea of kind of outreach events, of inviting people in, is one of the hallmarks of student ministry. Church and parachurch organizations, you're constantly thinking, what event can we put on that people will feel comfortable inviting their classmates to? And we reckon it's one of probably two traditional forms of mission that we do in our churches. One being outreach events, the other being our service ministries, where we seek to engage people through serving the community and the world around us. Now, those two things are very good things. There is exceptional kingdom work done in our outreach events and in our service ministry. What Phil and I aren't doing this morning is trying to present material that suggests this is better than traditional forms of church ministry. It's just simply something that's different from those traditional forms of mission. Something that's not better, but just something that's different. Because in the midst of our engagement with our outreach events and our service ministries, there's still a call for us to be authentic, to love people, and to seek to carry the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into the places where we spend time. And that includes those places where we're engaging in shared interest with the people around us. I have uh, created a little diagram that will hopefully explain this further. Um, Here is a subculture. The surfing subculture. Don't ask me why it's the surfing subculture. Couldn't answer that question. When Phil and I first met to discuss this, we met the apple green between Glengormley and Temple Patrick to chat about it. And for some reason, despite the fact that neither of us are surfers or in any way engaged with surfing, surfing became our go-to example of a subculture, a group of people who enjoy a shared activity. In this case, it's surfing. Here are these two traditional forms of church ministry and mission story that we're thinking about. Outreach events and service ministry. The places where we seek to engage the cultures around us, either through outreach events or through serving them. Now, if we sort of overlap these circles in a kind of a Venn diagram, I reckon this is roughly what we see. And first of all, I think that goes to highlight the importance of our outreach events and our service ministries, because there are people within that subculture, crucially, who are engaged by those activities of the church. There is a connection between this subculture and the church through both our outreach events and our service ministries. There is also, however, a group at the top, who I'll highlight in yellow, who aren't touched by those traditional forms of church mission. So the sort of logical conclusion here is that as the people of the church, the best way for us to reach those folks highlighted in the top of that circle is by entering that circle ourselves, by stepping into it and carrying the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into that place. And for that to happen effectively, it's much better if the people of the church don't look like this, but instead look like this, where we share the same interests and hobbies and passions and have a common ground with which we can engage people, but allows us to seamlessly integrate into that subculture and carry the truth of our scripture into that place. That's why we reckon that ministering through our hobbies and our passions is important. It brings us into contact with people that might not otherwise be ministered to or missioned to by our standard forms of church outreach. As we move on, though, without thinking beyond why it's important, we want to think about practically, okay, if we've realized it's important, practically how do we do that on a day-to-day basis? How do we outwork that in our lives? To start with, I suppose I want to just introduce a bit of vocabulary that I want to use for the rest of the seminar. I've introduced you to, to Ray Oldenburg's work, this idea of the third place, and for the rest of the seminar, I'd love to refer to us as third place missionaries. Think of yourself going out this morning as third-place missionaries. 
my, my sort of precedent, my justification for using that term is I quite like Oldenburg's language. First place is home. Second place is our workplace. The third place are our places where we go to engage in activities and hobbies and the joys in our life with other people. Mission is just a word that means sending or being sent. So if we call ourselves third place missionaries, we're recognizing that we are the sent people of God, sent as bearers of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into those places of shared interest and activity. Third place missionaries. I think that's a a good and, and useful term for us to apply as we think about this stuff. And there are, I think, three useful points for the third place missionary to understand and to leave with this morning. And I'll throw them up on the screen here and we'll work through them one at a time. First of all, engage. Secondly, connect. And thirdly, proclaim. I tried very hard to get them to all start with the same letter. But it didn't pan out. Phil knows the anxiety that I had over the last couple of weeks trying to make this work. But these words are just better. So let's just roll with them. Engage in culture, connect with people, and proclaim the gospel. So firstly, that first one, engaging with culture. Engagement with culture allows us to step into these third places and share a common ground with the people that we interact with. But engaging in culture, and sometimes engaging in our hobbies and interests, can throw up dilemmas and questions, especially as we start to rationalize how we live as the people of God, people who are called to live by a theology of in the world but not of the world, and yet also interact with the culture and the world around us. So I thought in my head of the young person who, say, loves to play video games with their friends. That's their, that's their hobby in life. That's their interest. Loves to play video games with their friends, but they also recognize that within those games, sometimes they find themes that they're uncomfortable with as a person of God. How do they rationalize that with the position of in the world, but not of the world? And I think we have to start by just, you know, laying down a a, a truth here. In the movies that we watch, in the books that we read, in the music that we listen to, that we perform in perhaps, in the actions and the conversation in our friendship groups, in our sports teams, in the themes of our video games and our board games, we are going to find themes and ideas that we're uncomfortable with as the people of God. That's that's a cert. We will find things that we're uncomfortable with as the people of God. But often those things come from culture being misguided or being ignorant of God's grace rather than from a position of overt enmity with our faith. And as bearers of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, we seek to step into those cultures and see them transformed and redeemed by Jesus Christ for the kingdom. I don't think I can express it as well as it was expressed to me through a book when I was at university. I read a book by a guy called uh, Donald Drew, uh, who was a Christian mentor writing to one of his Christian mentees at university. And he talked around some of these themes about cultural engagement. Here's what Drew says. He says, first of all, be interested in some of the things your contemporaries are enthusiastic about. So in other words, if there is a natural interest for you, if there's something that you enjoy to do and the people around you enjoy doing, be interested in those things. Drew goes on, pop culture has its values. There is excellence to be found in some popular culture. Respect its achievements. Comment on its failures and falsities. Think in those words we find just an excellent uh, language moving forward for how we approach and engage with culture. We respect its achievements. We comment on its failures and falsities. For a biblical precedent of this, I think it's great to look towards Daniel and the book of Daniel. Have a read through that. It's chock full of this exact dilemma of young people removed from their culture, introduced to a completely alien culture, but who are are carrying with them the sentiment of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, Jeremiah 29, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord your God for it. If it prospers, you prosper. So Daniel and his friends stepped into Babylonian culture with a heart to see it redeemed and transformed by the values of the one true God that they brought with them. But in order to do that effectively, we see examples in the story of Daniel of the times when he and his friends recognize that the best position they can approach this from at times is to cooperate with the culture that they step into. Crucially, however, and this is the important part, this is where the Sadducees, as Phil pointed out for us, fell short. Daniel and his friends knew where to draw the line. 
when that culture demanded something of them that was diametrically opposed to the teachings of their God and their scripture, they knew when to say no to engaging with that part of culture. We see that even to the point where they're under the threat of death, a fiery furnace and a lion's den. But they went there with a heart to see that culture transformed, redeemed by the values of God that they carried into that place. I think we see Daniel and his friends living out those, uh, those words that, that Drew sort of usefully paraphrased for us. Respect the achievements of culture. Comment on its failures and falsities. It's a good model for us moving forward, thinking about cultural engagement. Secondly then, connect. So we engage with culture. We find the things that our contemporaries are interested in, that we're interested in too, and we engage with it because it gives us a common ground. But we do so discerningly respecting its achievements, commenting on its failures and falsities. Through that, we get a unique opportunity to connect with the people in those places of shared interest, the people within those subcultures. Third place mission is more interested in the low-key moments than the big events. Third place mission is more interested in the low-key moments. Those low-key moments, as I'm describing them, are points of connection, natural, meaningful conversation with people. And Phil outlined some of this for us when he talked about the teachings of Jesus, because we see this as one of the markers of Jesus' teaching. Some commentators talk about the fact that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. We see him dining at the tables of different people, different cultural groups, transcending social norms, but giving those places a table at which they felt welcome and could engage in conversation. Now those words, welcome, conversation, are those same markers that Ray Oldenburg would outline centuries later. So we see in Jesus' ministry an identification of stuff that sociology millennia later would say are important markers of community life and conversation. Sharing low-key moments with people is an important part of third-place mission. Sharing a meal together having coffee together. It's not about the big event. It's not about booking the headliner act to come to church so that hopefully loads of people will come along. It's about drawing alongside people and sharing in those natural, social, and cultural moments. Connect with people. Finally then, we engage with culture. We respect its achievements. We comment on its failures and falsities. In doing so, we create a common ground with which we can engage with the people around us. We can connect with them in low-key, natural social moments, like having a coffee together, sharing a meal together. But that must lead to something. It must lead to something. Through our connection with people, through our love of those people that we connect with, we desire to see their lives transformed by an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Third place mission is not friendship evangelism. It's not warming people up in the hope that someday they'll maybe come along to our church. It's about being intentional of speaking the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into those natural and meaningful conversations that we have with the people that we connect with and hoping that through those encounters they find the Lord Jesus Christ and and have a transformative experience. And I think we see this kind of example in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in, in John chapter 4. And in fact, in that encounter, I think Jesus gives us a remarkable example of how we do this proclamation well in those low-key exchanges. Because this was essentially just a conversation with a lady beside a well. A lady who was marginalized, who had experienced difficulty in her life. But Jesus also observed that she had an immediate need. She was thirsty. She was coming to the well in the heat of the afternoon, and she was thirsty. She tells Jesus that much in verse 15 of John chapter 4. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. She was still thinking about her immediate physical need. Jesus took a conversation that started as secular, and he made it into a conversation that was sacred. The secular to the sacred. That's a marker of our our conversations in the third place. Jesus saw that this lady had an immediate physical need. She was thirsty. And he took that principle and used it to expound scripture. He used it to introduce her to her spiritual need, her eternal need. 
in the same way in the conversations that you folks will have in those low-key moments with the people you engage with, in the, the, the times you meet them for coffee, in the times that you have a meal with them, in the times that you meet them for the shared experience that you enjoy, you will have meaningful conversations. Conversations about big things in life, their, their emotional needs, their physical needs, what's happening in their life. They'll talk to you about themes of, of anger, of pain, of grief, and loads of other things. And into that we must seek to minister into their immediate need, but also look towards their eternal need. To start with the secular, but move to the sacred. I think this is the stuff of, of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, Instead, worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. This isn't about third place missionaries taking our testimony and throwing it at people. It's being prepared to explain the hope that we have in our life in the midst of the situations that those that we've connected with are enduring. So take the example of someone you encounter who is going through grief. We minister into that need practically. If we can, minister in immediately. We draw alongside them. We grieve with them. We mourn with them. But we also seek to take that conversation and make it one that is sacred, one that is about their spiritual need, and explain the fact that for us and from what the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed to us, that grief is not the end, that there's hope beyond grief. Start secular and become sacred. And grief is not the only example here, folks. In the conversations that you have with the people you connect with, through good times and bad, there is truth to be imparted into the spectrum of human experience. Three things. Engage, connect, and proclaim. As you seek to use your hobbies and your passions and your interests, as you seek to step into those places of shared interest with the people around you, engage with culture. Respect its achievements. Comment on its failures and falsities. Connect with people there. Be intentional about that connection. Invite them for coffee. Share in those low key moments. But always seek to impart the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ into their lives in those meaningful and big conversations. Have the conversations that are secular, but also look for the opportunities to explain the hope that is within you and impart the gospel into their lives. That's essentially the sort of content of our, our seminar wrapped up, folks. I hope that's useful. Phil and I want to spend a wee bit of time answering questions, if we can. So if you have any thoughts or questions or comments, scribble those down for just a second or two. As you're scribbling, we thought it might be useful to leave you with like three practical points that literally as you leave the seminar this morning, you might be able to use in engaging with some of this stuff. So just three practical points, one into each of these. So first of all, that idea of engaging. You had a conversation with one another about what your, your passions and your hobbies and interests are. Think about the places that you do those and think about joining somewhere where you can do those with other people because they are natural places of mission. Take your joy and your passion and use it missionally. If you can't think of somewhere where you can do that, go on to social media, check on Facebook. There's loads of groups uh, just crying out for people to be a part of them. You can get an app on your smartphone called Meetup where you put in your, your interests and your hobbies and you can meet with other people who love the same stuff that you love. So engage in those things that you love to do. Secondly, in terms of the connect, be intentional. Even as you leave this morning, think of a person that you've connected with. Text them. Meet them for a coffee. As you go home, give them a call, meet them for dinner sometime. Be intentional because those people that we connect with will appreciate that, that loyalty uh, within that connection. And then thirdly, in the point about proclaiming, there is nothing more important than our love for those, those people that we'll connect with and our desire to see them encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's throw out a picture of a, a chap here. Uh, this chap on your left, Penn Gillette, if some of you come across him, part of the magical, magical duo of Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn Gillette is a prolific atheist. And I don't want to go into the story too much, but at one of his shows, Penn Gillette was given a Bible. And he, he used that experience and, and he wrote online, uh, I suppose, a little bit of an observation about Christians sharing their faith. Here's what Penn Gillette says, just as you leave today. And you know what? It's not dissimilar to some of the stuff that was shared with us in our Bible teaching this morning. Penn Gillette says this. You believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and you think that it's not really worth sharing that because it would make things socially awkward. 
If I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a point where I just have to tackle you. What's more important than that? You believe that there's a heaven and a hell and you think it's not worth sharing because it would make things socially awkward. Proclamation is the vital part of our engagement with the subculture in which we step into. We must desire to share the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ with those people out of love for them, out of a desire for those we connect with to experience a full life on earth and a certainty of eternity. Thank you so much, folks. I'm going to pass the mic back to Phil. If you have any questions or anything, uh, throw your hand up and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can answer. Are there any questions? Okay. In that case, we've either been incredibly clear and that's wonderful, or we've been so confusing that you're all just messed up. So I'm hoping it's the former. Um, we're going to hang around for a bit here at the end. So if, if there is something you want to ask and you just didn't want to speak up, please feel free to come and chat to us. Um, I suppose a disclaimer, we're not, we're not experts in this. This is something that we have been thinking about and, and praying about and discussing for a while. Um, it's something that we believe is important um, and we'll try to help where we can. Uh, we're certainly not experts, but if you do have questions, please do come up and chat to us. Um, that's us formally done, I suppose, with this seminar. I'd like to close just by praying for us, praying for you guys, uh, and, and then you're free to go on. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That we are people, Lord, that you have created with unique passions and interests, unique personalities. And Father, we thank you that we can share those passions and interests with others, that we can we can interact with other people on a level of, of fellowship over, over our shared interests, our, our shared enjoyments. Father, we pray that you would help us as, as your followers, as, as believers in Christ Jesus, that you would help us to see, Lord, how we can redeem every aspect of our lives for the glory of God. How we can use our interests and our passions to get to know people who don't yet know the truth of the gospel. To engage with the culture around us, to, to comment on its falsities and celebrate its triumphs. To meet with people, to, to engage with people, to care for people. And Father, we pray that you would show us clearly the opportunities that we have to proclaim your truth into broken lives. We thank you, Lord, that you're the God of all our lives. We want to see you on the throne of our hearts. And we pray that as we go from this place that we would consider how we can reach those areas that the church, standard church outreaches maybe don't get to how we as your people can fulfill the commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' name, amen.